We continue our study in Acts this morning, and we are putting this in the context of a revolution, that what we have in Christ and the establishment of His kingdom is both a, uh, a spiritual, but also a cultural, social revolution. That the implications of the life of Christ and the cruciformed life, something uh, focused on and seen through the work and life of Christ and His cross, changes the way in which humans interact in such a radically significant way that in any and every time that Christians act like Christians, it gets a reaction and life spreads. Sometimes, as we'll see throughout the book of Acts, in the midst of great reaction and oppression by those whose authority is undermined by the gospel. Right? If we remember Jesus' own life, it is an interesting combination of, of, of religious leadership and political leadership that end up wanting and having Jesus killed. Yes, they use the crowds. Yes, the crowds get whipped up. But what we read throughout the Gospels is this regular sense that those who recognize their power is being undermined by what Jesus is doing and teaching become the first to want to see Him removed from the scene. And that's true of Christianity throughout its existence. Wherever we are living to the best of our ability, empowered by the Holy Spirit, Christianity upsets cultural norms. Conservative, liberal, doesn't matter. The gospel is so radically different than any human construction that it inevitably undermines the societies it's in. It can't help but do so. And so we're embracing that idea that church, God's people gather together, I'm reminded of that t-shirt that Sacred Road, a ministry we support that works on the Yakima and Warm Springs Reservation, they wrote, they had a t-shirt for their summer groups that had a bunch of people running out of a church, and it said, uh, the church has left the building, right, sort of that old line about Elvis leaving the building, because the church is the people, of course, right, we're never confused that this building is the church, we are the church, and so the church acting is a powerful agent for not just spiritual revitalization, but cultural and social revitalization as well. And so, it's not that we can engage in that in a way that has a specific set of goals and plans. It is absolutely the reality of what happens when Christians live in and through a culture. They have an impact, and the church does. And God uses that for His glory. So this morning we take a step uh, ahead in our narrative. And it is still pre-Pentecost. And there is about 120 disciples gathering together. And Jesus has just uh, entered the throne room and has become seated at the right hand of the Father. And we have this early story of what God's people do in this intervening time. And so we're going to put the text in front of us. Uh, We're going to read 12 uh, through 26. Hear now God's word. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room 
where they were staying. Those present were Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture has been fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in the ministry. With the reward he got for the wickedness, Judas had bought a field. There he fell headlong, and his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akadama, which is the field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, May his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it. And may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who has been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, being, uh, beginning with John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection." So they proposed two men, Joseph, called uh, Bar-Sabbas, also known as Justice. And you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over the apostle, uh, apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go uh, where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and it fell on Matthias, and he... Also, uh, he was added to the eleven apostles. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would enlighten us to your word. Lord, uh, a story like this, we ask that we might, by your spirit, be encouraged and refreshed, but also, Lord, that we might have perspective on how it is you would use this story for us today. And Lord, whatever is said that is not true or useful for the building up of your people, would those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. The challenge often in the church, is, as we know, is that you get a pattern that works. You get something that seems effective for a period of time, and then very quickly we think that's the only way you can do it in the church. This is the way we've always done it. Perhaps you've heard uh, the stories of that. Perhaps you've been uh, engaged in one of those unfortunate circumstances where certain habits and traditions of the church become so entrenched that it's hard to imagine doing it a different way. And what often happens is that folks will then find a Bible verse that seems to fit with their agenda, and they'll say, see, the Bible says we should do it this way. This passage in Acts does have things that we should continue to do today, but perhaps not in the way that we might initially think. 
There are all kinds of ways in which this season in the life of the church is completely unique. We have a transitional period between the rise of the church fully established, the time of Israel's testing for them to come into the kingdom of God. We don't understand how all of this timing works. We just know that according to Jesus, there's roughly about 40 years from his ascension to the end of the temple and its destruction in 70 AD, which was meant as a time, not that the last Jewish person could come to faith, but it was a specific and meaningful and significant time in the way that God regularly works with his people for those who he had been uniquely connected to, to know the reality that their hope and fulfillment and promises of a Messiah had actually come true. And so there's all kinds of really important continuity between the time when God used Israel explicitly in a cultural and racial sense to this transition into the church, which becomes this non-racial, diverse, global movement. But in the midst of that, the disciples are transitioning. And so there are things here that we really should not do again. And in fact, even in Acts, they don't do these things twice. We'll see that Stephen, not Stephen, James, really, James... The Apostle James is killed about four years down the road, and there's no attempt to replace him among the twelve. There's something unique happening here. And so we need to recognize that, celebrate it, and then also understand how, no matter what time it is, there are certain ways in which God's people are called to lean on and trust and pursue their God. So let's look at a few of these ideas first as we go through uh, this text. First of all, uh, one of the things that is radically consistent for all of us is Scripture. Peter, in his believing that it is time to fill this twelfth spot, that because Judas had been unfaithful, And because of the significance of the twelve signifying the twelve tribes of Israel and doing it right, and this being a fulfillment of all of those promises of what Israel was to be as a faithful witness to who God is, there is real significance to having that number rounded out with a faithful member. That as they now go out and after Pentecost will witness to Jerusalem and witness to those first uh, groups of Jews who are gathered together in that season in Jerusalem. And then as they move out to the diaspora, that continuity of the twelve and the recognition of saying God has been faithful and has created a faithful Israel in the midst of these twelve symbolic and real Jewish leaders. The tribes are being called home. The tribes are being reunified in Christ. Powerful imagery of God's faithfulness. And that's all drawn from Scripture as Peter quotes these amazing Psalms. One, that we shouldn't have been surprised that there was one who would betray the Savior. The psalmist sees it and recognizes that there are those who are unfaithful and would seek to undo the work of God. 
but that they will not ultimately win. And so when you read the Psalm 69, which is a, a, a psalm of protest and plea for deliverance in the midst of false leadership and a sense of failure. And we understand why Peter's mind would go to that place because yes, he's confident that Jesus is risen. He's seen Him. He's been blessed by Him. He's been taught by Him. And then he went through the cloud and entered the presence of God and he's not here at that moment. And he is waiting for the Spirit and there is a missing seat, an empty seat. And that desire to have that continuity And so there is the reflection on a psalm of protest and plea for God to act, God to provide faithful leadership. And then second of all, there is Psalm 109, which is categorized as a prayer of vindication. And dare we say even vengeance. That God will establish His leadership and He will move forward and those who have acted unjustly and evil in an evil manner will be dealt with by the justice of God. That even as He pleads for deliverance, there is a recognition that what they need is that strong presence of God to vindicate the truth of who God is and His establishing of a new people. And that requires the fulfillment of what's gone before. That that season and continuity could be brought to its right conclusion, which is not an end, but a beginning. And so Peter references Scripture. We know that today, any discussion we have about what God is going to do next in our lives or in the lives of our church much must start from a careful reflection on Scripture itself. There's the first step of continuity between us and what the apostles are doing in the upper room before Pentecost. The Word of God, as Peter says, is the Word of the Spirit. Even before Pentecost, he knew they had access to the Holy Spirit. Something happens at Pentecost which is different. But again, Peter's drawing that continuity. God has been faithful. He's given us His Word. The Holy Spirit has spoken to us. Let us hear what the Holy Spirit is saying through the Word of God. And so they listen. One can imagine without too much needless speculation that they were praying a lot of Scripture to one another and recounting. They had amazing memorization skills. They referenced that a lot. They may have had scrolls. We know that they were referencing Scripture and praying in those days between God's, uh, Christ's ascension and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. They went to God's Word and they spoke encouragement and truth and gained context and hope from reflection upon God's Word. It's where we all start. If there is a rule, we start with Scripture, not in the sense of Scripture proving our point but laying ourselves before Scripture and saying, Lord, what would you have us do? How is it that you are moving even now? How does your word help us to see more clearly your work and your kingdom in this day, in this town, in my life, in the suffering that I'm going through? Lord, your word is the first place I go for context and wisdom and insight to my reality.
there is the continuity of Scripture. There is also the continuity of prayer. There is a way in which sometimes I list all of the elements of our worship service as prayers of. Because all of worship is a prayer. Prayer is by definition an engagement in a conscious conversation with the divine. In speaking with and to and expecting God to speak back to us in the various ways in which he is gifted and willing to do. The means at his disposal are vast. We cannot limit God in the ways that he communicates to us, whether it is speaking, whether it is moving our spirits, whether it is directing us to a passage of scripture. But as we pray, we engage not just in a philosophical attempt to understand a particular ancient text and see if there is a connection between the ancient text's wisdom and my life today, that would turn the scripture into an answer book. As if I perhaps don't need prayer or the Holy Spirit because the Lord's already spoken in His Word. All I need to do is read the Bible and then I'll figure it out. But that's not what the text says. They were reflecting on Scripture and in constant prayer. There is the expectation that talking with God in the moment about who God is and about what my circumstances are and what wisdom would look like brings the text alive. It's why it is alive, sharper than any two-edged sword. The Word of God is alive because the God who wrote it is still alive and lives in my heart and gathers together in this assembly and delights for us to understand intimately His will for us, even if that will is that we might not know what our next step is. But nonetheless, that He is faithful and that we are to take the next step. Prayer is a constant. It is a consistent requirement. So now we can ask ourselves the question, did they make a wise decision? Well, scholars have a lot of fun with this. And I've gone back and forth. But yes. Because what were they called to do? They weren't called to set up a way that you and I would pick our ministers for the next 2,000 years or when Jesus comes back. They weren't setting up a process for how they would keep a group of 12 men in charge of the church for perpetuity. They were trying to fill a particular role at a particular moment, and they went to Scripture, and they came up with very reasonable, very wise standards. Been with us since the beginning, since the beginning of the baptism of John. Someone the Lord drew early to our gathering. Makes sense. He's got to be a witness to everything Jesus has done on earth. As we stand as the twelve, a witness who's been there since the beginning is a reasonable and wise category. He was walked through the ministry. These men were probably a part of those sent out to do the healing. There were 70 uh, that were sent out. Chances are these were men who participated in that work of ministry, of prayer and healing during Jesus' life when he sent them out to do the work. And they came back and he debriefed and worked with them. And that he'd seen the resurrected Lord and ministered, had been ministered to by and talked to, had been in the presence of the resurrected Jesus. And so there were two men who met those qualifications to the fullest degree. And then, according to what they had as 
a way of deciding between those two, again, we probably would have put it to a vote, which God can use democracy. And then sometimes God uses democracy in hilarious ways. But the important way in which they put it at the feet of of the Holy Spirit yet again was to cast lots. This is a biblically uh, acceptable way of when you get to a certain point determining between two equally good choices. It was accepted in the day. I don't know that we do it today. I'm not suggesting that we should. We have other ways of doing it. That's why I'm suggesting that everything in this text is not applicable for us in 2018. But what it's clear is that they wanted the Holy Spirit, to have the final word. They took human wisdom to the point that they could and they left it at the feet of the Lord. And they established the twelve again. Now, interestingly enough, Jesus is not constrained to give the apostolic office of going and professing the Christian faith and the kingdom of God to their standards. Because now when Jesus wants to expand the kingdom and take it to the Gentiles, interestingly enough, Paul doesn't qualify with any of these standards except the last one in a really supernatural, amazing way in which he sees the risen Lord in a vision that is truly other than most human experiences and is unique. Paul talks about himself as being unnaturally born. That doesn't undermine what the disciples did to make that decision. To fill out the twelve for what they needed to do. And this is why it's it's very uh, important for us not to canonize their particular standard or try and find a way of creating a process where we can make decisions in the future because interestingly enough, God is not constrained by it. Even though He blesses what happens in Acts chapter uh, 1. For His own purposes, Paul is someone who was anti-Jesus most of his life, who was raised theologically to be opposed to what Jesus was for, who persecuted the Christians, who was present at the first martyrdom, and he becomes the means by which Jesus takes his kingdom into the realm of the Gentiles. He really qualifies as none of the things that the apostles saw as valuable in Acts chapter 1. We shouldn't put these texts at war. The point is not that one should be more powerful than the other. It is that we must be humble in recognizing that even as we seek wisdom and seek the Lord's direction, even as we reflect on Scripture and lay our lives before the Lord in prayer, that there are times when we will come to a decision by one means that will not work the next time we need to make a decision. Because the Lord moves Because our resources change, because the time and the place and the calling of the kingdom changes, what it warns us against in any way is trying to find a secret way, a tried and true, always magical fashion that if I do these things, I will get to know God's will. If I do these things, I will get the answer I want. And God will not be constrained by magic phrases or controlled by our structures. And we can take good and wise examples and try and turn them into a process that will always get the same result. 
That's our danger. That's our way of trying to get God back into a box of our control. And I want to both praise and celebrate the beauty of this passage and what it meant for Israel to have 12 true apostles to represent the true and risen Messiah, to be true Israelites in all that was promised before, and to celebrate that as they walk out on Pentecost and to speak in the tongues of all the Jews gathered together and proclaim the miracle of the Messiah to all gathered. And they needed 12 to do it. But there is no formula. There is a life with Christ the sureness of His Word, the promise of the Spirit being present with us to, to, to guide, to strengthen, and encourage. But there is no process that will ever be devised for the best and purest spiritual motives to come up with decisions or to come up with answers, to come up with a process that's going to make the end result work out the way we want it every time. That we rest in a God who delights to use means, but will never be controlled by those means. We delight to worship a God who knows us intimately, who walks with us. All of the intimacy in this passage of one who knew Jesus, and Jesus does by the Holy Spirit, enter into our lives in a way that there's intimacy with Him. And yet, it is because of that personal intimacy that He tells you your story the way you need to hear it in every season of your life. We talked this morning in our Sunday school class about Jesus pointing Martha forward after the death of Lazarus before His resurrection. And the commentary had made the point that he guides Martha's eyes not back to what could have happened, but forward towards the resurrection. Our Lord and Savior never directs our eyes backwards, but forward. Forward to what he's doing in and through our lives. Forward to the consummation of what he's doing. Forward to the new ways in which he will lead us and guide us and show us his glory. It allows the church to continue to grow and be dynamic and be able to reach the unique pains of its individuals, but also the unique changes in the culture. We are not static, but we follow a God who is wise and dynamic, not reacting to, but leading this world. We don't need to fear change. We don't need to fear that things don't work anymore the way they used to. Because God's ministry and the work of the kingdom can and will change, not its content, not its character, but often its means. Because the truth of God and the power of God never stops working. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be merciful to the preaching of your word. Again, Lord, we ask that we would both learn from the wisdom of Scripture and glean good ways of living and right paths that you would lead us on. But Lord, also protect us from from being constrained or constraining you by particular fashions or means. Lord, may we see the dynamic way in which your kingdom moves forward, but always as we sang this morning with the cornerstone of you that does not change, that is our anchor. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.